0: There was this controversial figure everywhere. He went people challenged him. They questioned his ideology Trolled him called him ugly names But he never took the bait never raised his voice refused to retaliate Because he believed he could change the world By turning the other cheek Good morning, Autumn Ridge Church. Welcome to you who are here in the auditorium and you who are at home. My name is Otis Hall. I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to be with you today. I'm wondering how that video made you feel. Like for me, when I watched that video, I kept having questions pop into my head. When I looked at it, I thought about... Like how would Jesus be received today? Would he be the controversial figure that they're talking about? Would, would people question who he was and what he was doing? What would he think of us when he stepped into our world of cancel culture and political unrest, Christian nationalism, mass shootings, racial injustice? What would the world tweet or post about Jesus? What would people do who follow him What would they do if he didn't align with their agendas or ended up on the wrong side of a news cycle? What would happen in that moment for Jesus? And and surely it must be new for some of us and startling for us that Jesus was outraged. And that he had to learn to control that. I mean that's challenging to us in the world that we live in. But it means that there's another layer of this he gets us thing that, that we can rest in because he understands that there are things in this world that cause us to have this sort of reaction. To, to, be, to be angry or shocked or have indignation and be extremely in that state. There are things in the world that we should feel this way about, Right? We should feel this way about the injustices in the world. We should feel this way about the mistreatment, the greed, and the poverty, and all the death that runs rampant around us. And the video reminds us that that Jesus was outraged about those things too. But he learned to control them. He didn't spend his years with us being constantly angry. And doesn't that feel like that's what our world is like today? We're we're constantly angry about something. And maybe you can't picture Jesus being angry. But do you know that in, in John he made a whip out of rope and chased people out of the temple. Do you know that he turned over tables on Palm Sunday. That, that he was angry with the Pharisees countless times. And even his disciples when they wouldn't let the children come to him. He was outraged. But he controlled it. When you look around our world today, when you look around our country today, how are we doing with that? Does it feel like we are managing our outrage? Because I'll tell you every morning when I wake up and I sit in my chair with my coffee before I come to work, I I think about what it is that's going to make me angry today. Is it going to be that my daughter's going to come home from school again and tell me that someone told her that her skin was too dark and it was ugly? Is it going to be another day where someone in this building or someone in the community questions whether I'm actually qualified to have my job or did I just get it because of tokenism? When I turn on the news or open the news app, what's the new shooting going to be? What kid or children is going to have gone to the wrong address and be unjustifiably and tragically shot? And how do I deal with it? How do I deal with it? Every time something like this happens, it triggers all of the outrage and the anger from the things that happened before in my life. I can... I can literally feel the anxiety about this stuff. It feels like post-traumatic stress. I'll give you an example. When I'm driving down the road and the police officer pulls behind me, whether I'm doing anything or not, I can feel the anxiety well up in my stomach. I remember the days when I drove into a neighborhood where I lived and was stopped multiple times by the same police officer to ask why I was in this neighborhood. I remember the ways that I was taught to handle the situation. If, he's, if you're pulled over, put your hands on the steering wheel. Don't move them. Don't reach for anything. Don't look the officer in the eye. Don't be aggressive because things can happen to you in that moment. And I think that I'm going to have to teach my daughter the same thing. Can you feel it? Can you feel The anger and the shock welling up in that moment. And and my guess is if I took a stool and I put it on the stage, I could ask any one of you in here and you could answer this question, what outrages you today? It's an important question because there are things that outrage us. There are things that outrage Jesus. He, He was upset about people being mistreated. He was angry about people keeping People from him using the law and the scriptures. He was outraged about the sick and the dying. All of those things that we heard about last week that broke his heart. The people who caused those things caused Jesus to be outraged. And those things could have consumed his days with us. He could have spent his time with us being angry all of the time. And lashing out at the people who were wrong. And using what he had to fix what was wrong. But he didn't let it consume his daily lives. Do we do that? Does it consume us? This is Tim Crater. He's an author and a comic. And he wrote something in the New York Times that caught my attention about outrage. He says this. Outrage is a lot like the other things that feel good. But over time devour us from the inside out. And it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. Doesn't it feel like that? Doesn't it feel like we're just waiting for the next thing to be outraged about, to to lash out about, to drive our stake in the ground about? Don't you feel like we live in a culture of outrage? I mean, come on, it's been... It's become so enticing that it's even filtered its way into those of us that follow Jesus. The, the, the part of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to look at today is, is about Jesus talking about this. Talking about what we should do in these moments. He's going he's gonna to reference Old Testament themes and laws and standards. And he's going he's to give us another way, a way to go higher in that, that transcends simple religious practices. He's not canceling the law. He's not challenging the law. He's just telling us that the law is the base of where we should start and we should be higher than that. He's going to do that in a way to help us learn what he's talking about. He's going to start by saying, you you have heard it said. He's going to give us a standard or a law. And he's going to move us through that and say, but I tell you this. And he's going to give us a way for us to be beyond that. Because he wants us to be righteous as people. To not just do the minimal things that we have to do to follow him. These texts today, they're, they're meant to help us as Jesus followers rise above the pain and the offenses that we experience. But without faith, they have the potential to make us feel like doormats and pushovers. They have the potential to make us look and think to Jesus and say, Jesus, are you serious? This is what you want me to do. Surely this is a test. Surely this is... You just seeing if I'm going to follow the law. This isn't what you really want me to do. Let's find out what it is that he wants us to do together. Let's, let's read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 38-40. through 40. And it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That, ye, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you, love those who lo- if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not, the, not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Did not even the pagans do that? There's one more line in the passage that we're going to read today. And it's where I want to start. And I know it feels strange to you that we're going to start at the end. But I'm going to tell you why. Because I'm one of those people that likes to flip to the end of the book and read the last page so I know where I'm going. But I think in this moment it will help us. It it helps us with a difficult text like this. Especially one that if we're honest we don't really want to do what it is that Jesus is telling us to do. A text where we're looking for a way to justify our outrage and our response to what's happening in our lives instead of taking what Jesus tells us to do seriously. And so I think in this case it will help us to see the end of how Jesus wants us to handle things. To, to have a foundation to stand on as we move through this passage. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect. Be perfect, therefore your heavenly father is perfect. How many of us feel the pressure of that? How many of us feel the weight of what he just said for us to do? I do. I know I feel it. And Jesus gets that about us too. You see, this word that says perfect is not meant for us to be unblemished and infallible as your heavenly father. Warren Wiersbe, who's a pastor and a biblical scholar, explains. He says, The word perfect in Matthew 5, verse 48, does not imply sinlessly perfect. For that's impossible in this life. Though it's a good goal to strive for. It suggests completeness, maturity as the sons of God. What God is telling us, what Jesus is saying in this moment is that he wants us to do what he said before this verse completely and be mature in the way that we, re, re, we respond to others. And he's, he's helping us. He's helping us move to a place where we can do this. And he does this by giving us three things in this passage that we can do to, to be more mature, to, to live the way he wants us to completely. He, he tells us to choose love over hate. To choose sacrificial service over resistance. To choose generosity over outrage. All of these things he wants us to do when we follow him. So let's start with this one. Let's start with choose love over hate. Jesus tells us, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This makes sense, right? It made sense to them in the day. Of course we want to hate things that are evil and people who are against Jesus, against what we believe. They must be our enemies. So this is okay. And maybe it makes us rally like the psalmist in Psalm 139 when he says this. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do not hate do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? And abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. What's important to understand is that this is not law, this is not a biblical standard. This is a person who is angry and hurt and outraged by the treatment of his people, one who's crying out to God for alignment with him so that his enemies, that are God's enemies, will be destroyed. But if you keep reading in this verse, there's this this switch in the moment. It's almost as if he's thinking about what he says. He's almost as if he's going through this catalog. And he gets to this point and he goes, whoa. Am I that enemy? Do I do that? And he goes on and he asks God, he petitions God to, to search him. To ensure that he's not also the enemy. And he says this, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Because he knows. He knows that God gets us. He knows that God knows us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our heart. And my question to us today is do we do this? Do we do this when we're in our groups and we are angry and we are upset? Do we ask God to search our hearts to make sure that we aren't the problem? Or do we take the easy road and use the verses before to do things like create division and justify injustice for people who are different than us? That's what would have happened in Jesus' time, right? The Jewish people would have just decided that all Jewish people were their friends, were their neighbors, and everybody else who wasn't in the club was their enemy. The Gentiles and the pagans were, were against God. They embodied evil, so of course we should hate them. It's just natural, right? It's biblical. Except that it's not. Except that it's about culture. It's about responding to what we don't like. Are we any different, though? Don't we all gather into like-minded groups and rally against different political agendas? Don't we we rally when there's racial division? Don't we talk about cultural offenses? Don't we do that? I know that when I get in those places, when I'm in those moments where people are discussing it, there's a question that I start asking myself. Otis, Otis, are are you outraged about what it is Jesus is outraged about? Or are you just upset about something you don't like? Or someone who makes you uncomfortable and wrapping it all up in Jesus language. Jesus goes on he says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Or not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do, do not even the pagans do that? You see, in this moment, God is doing something amazing. or Jesus is taking the competing attitudes of love your neighbor and hate your enemies and bringing them together in a way that stunned his audience. And probably stuns us too. But the truth is that's what God intended from the beginning. He was intending this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you the same way that you pray for those who are with you. God hates evil, but his intent is to bring reconciliation, not outrage, not war. And if we want to follow Jesus, he's asking us to move from worldly handling of offenses to a disposition of perfect, mature, and complete love. He's telling us that when we're outraged, when we're angry, when we show maturity, we should show maturity as followers of Him. Jesus is saying when there's a disagreement, when there's disunity, we should love our neighbors and our enemies the same. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Faya read the, or to ask us to read the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus uses this story to talk about who's our neighbor. And there's some nuances in that story that, that maybe you've missed. Maybe you haven't. Had someone tell you. But but you should understand that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They were enemies. But this Samaritan, they, they stop along the side of the road to nurse this man back to health. And This Samaritan, he didn't know if this man was a Jew or a Gentile because he had been stripped of all his clothes, all the ways that he would have been able to identify who he was. But it didn't matter. His comfort didn't matter. He put him on the donkey that he intended to ride on into Jericho. His finances didn't matter. He gave up two days worth of wages to make sure this man was cared for and promised to come back and take care of any other expense. His reputation didn't matter. He didn't care about who was whispering about him, who was gossiping about why he was carrying this man or Whoever this person was, was it a Gentile or a Jew? Like, why are you doing this? What is going on with you? He didn't care because all he knew was that he had to help his neighbor. And he reminds us. He reminds us that God's love is for all of us without clauses attached. It doesn't matter who you are or what you are. Because he causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on both groups. Those that we like and those that we don't like. He gets us. He understands that we have this natural tendency to gravitate towards people who are like us. Who agree with us. And yet he continues to drive us as followers of him to be mature. To grow in this fact. When he says this. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. And the truth is, all groups take care of their own. And to some degree, all groups look at anybody who's outside of them as a threat, as an enemy to what they are comfortable with, where they find security, where they are at home. But Jesus is pointing out to them that even the people who they think are the worst of them, the tax collectors and the Gentiles do this. So what makes you different? Here's what's different. God's love goes beyond normal human ties. And so should ours. His love is so far beyond normal human ties that it should drive those of us that follow him to respond differently to the things that anger us and outrage us. It should drive us to choose sacrificial service over resistance. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. That phrase, that if anybody forces you to go one mile statement, it doesn't really make sense to us, right? Because I can tell you, if one of you tried to force me to go one mile, much less two, I would ask you and be insulted that you thought that I would even want to go walk the one mile. But in Jesus' day, This was a serious thing because Roman officials and Roman military could could script you at any point. You could be on the way to the synagogue. You could be on the way to the hospital. You could be on the way home to take care of your children. And they could stop you on the street and tell you to go and do something. And you had no choice. They could hand you their heavy pack and make you walk a thousand steps. Or one mile. And you would have to do it. The most famous version of this that we know about was Simon of Cyrene being commanded by the Roman guards to carry Jesus' cross. You know that that wasn't his choice. He was made to do it. And then Jesus turns to the people who follow him and he says, one mile's not enough. Go two. And then Jesus moves to talk to us about how to treat uncomfortable people. Give to the ones... Who ask. Don't turn away from the ones who want to borrow. Jesus is pushing this point even further. Helping us to understand that there are uncomfortable people who are going to come into our lives and, and ask us for things that we don't want to do. But Jesus says it doesn't matter whether people are mean to you or mistreat you or people who are in need. We should respond the same way. Jesus wants our relationships with people who are around us that have more power and less power to be mature. He wants us to deal with our enemies and our neighbors the same way as the Heavenly Father deals with us. Because after all, at one point or the other, weren't we both the enemy and the sons and daughters of Him? Didn't He choose us when we were yet sinners? When he when we needed a savior he chose the ultimate version of generosity and he went to the cross and he died for our sins. And that's exactly what he's asking us to do too. He's asking us to choose generosity over outrage. You've heard it said An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist any evil person. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now this section of the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the most misunderstood and the most misquoted. And the reason that I think we misunderstand it is that we're not as grounded in Jesus as we say we are. Because you and I both know that our first recourse, our natural recourse is to strike back. And sometimes it's to strike first. But Jesus gets it. He gets that we are owed retribution for the things that are done to us. But he wants us to forego it because our significance, our security, our satisfaction are not about the things of this world. They are found in him. Jesus is telling his kingdom people to have the moral strength to live above and press through the pain. Because he told us that that pain was given. That there will be people who are going to take advantage of you. They're going to manipulate you. They're going to use you. You will suffer. What should kingdom people do with that? Well, He told us, be mature. Treat people the way our Heavenly Father treats us. Round yourself in Jesus. Because those things don't really matter. And and Jesus knows. Jesus knows us. He gets us. He understands that when he teaches these things, we need to understand. We need an image of how this works in our lives. And so he gives us illustrations on How this happens and how we should respond, how we should do things to choose generosity over outrage. He he says this, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. He's talking about that person that's less than noble with you, that has intentions to harm you. But he says, do not resist that evil person. Just like if there was somebody who wants to slap you on the right cheek. Turn to him the other cheek also. But we need to pay attention. Because this verse this verse is one of the most misquoted verses in scripture. It's often quoted this way. If somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. But that's not what it says. It says the right cheek. And it's important why the author added the right cheek. Let me, let me explain to you why that was so important. Because during the time of Christ, a blow to your right cheek was one of the most grievous things that people could do to you. It was the biggest insult that people could do. If they wanted to show how much disdain and the test they had for you, they would walk across the room and they would slap you across your right cheek. Let me explain to you why that's such a big deal. Because it's difficult to slap somebody on the right cheek. The only way that you could do it is to slap, you, slap someone with your left hand. And in this culture, that hand was unclean. And if I slapped you with it, it would bring as much dishonor to me as it would to you. So there's only one other way to do it. I have to backhand you. That action was reserved for a master to a slave. To somebody who was thought of as less than. But I want to be clear. Jesus is not saying that if somebody slaps you on the cheek, you should stick the other one out and say, wow, boy, that hurts. Why don't you try this one too? But Jesus is telling us not to trade insult for insult. Even if it means we're going to receive more. Even if it means another slap to our ego. That's what this is about. It's about the insult. It's about being perceived as less than, inferior, and not deserving of dignity. It's not Jesus telling you to be a doormat. If that's how this verse has been taught to you, I want to apologize to you today. That's not what he's saying. I want to say to my brothers and sisters who were taught that turning the other cheek means accepting injustice and racism and sexism and marginalization without you being able to say a word or to defend yourself. I'm sorry. To the women and the children who were abused in homes and were taught that turning the other cheek means to stay and pray until the abuser's heart was changed. I'm sorry. For those of us who grew up in church that heard that turn the other cheek means to be nice and gentle, timid people who were doormats. I'm sorry. That's not at all what Jesus meant in this moment. Jesus is trying to tell us that the insults of the world don't define you. They're not the source of your dignity or your identity. For those things are found in him. You are not a product of how good or bad somebody treats you. You are a son or daughter of the king and your power and identity come from him. We should remember how we talk about identity. It's I find joy in defining myself by what Jesus did, not what I do. And I would add in this moment, not what other people do to me. It's about choosing his kingdom over outrage and retribution. Jesus goes on to teach us about that. He says, and if anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. <laughs> Not in Minnesota, Lord. <laughs> and It shifts, this moment, it shifts. Jesus begins to talk about legal matters in this moment. And, and the disciples are taken to court and somebody is suing them for literally the shirt off their back. Jesus is instructing his disciples that if they do that, if they try to take your shirt, give them your coat as well. This was a major thing to them because their outer coat was an indispensable piece of clothing. So much so that when it was pledged in a court setting as a promissory note for the things that were owed, the court made the person that it was given to give it back to the poor because this outer coat was used for them to sleep on and keep warm. And so you can imagine how startling this commandment was for the people of that day. Jesus says, instead of defending yourself and seeking retaliation, they must give the person who is unfairly attempting to take away their basic necessities, their basic rights, rather than trying to get that garment back. Give them the outer one too. Jesus is forcing the hearer to think. He provides a shocking and graphic and I have to tell you somewhat humorous example of what it means to be in non-resistance. And it's funny to me because if you did this literally, there would literally be people walking around in town in their underwear. But what you need to understand in this honor-shame society that Jesus was living in, being naked in that way would have been dishonoring to them in a way that they couldn't fathom. They were reeling at this example. And he gets it. He knows that the hearers and now the readers of this word value their honor and their things more than they value his kingdom. And we get it, right? That idea of being stripped of the things we have worked for, those things that we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and did, those things that we have pride in. When they're taking away, it certainly would cause us to be outraged, right? How many of us feel like something's been taken away lately? How many of us can picture the person or the group that's responsible for taking away that thing that we value? How many of us can see how you want to deal with it? Is it outrage? Is it anger? Is it retaliation? Because there's really only two ways that you can deal with this. You can can take that road. You can figure out how to put the person down. You can figure out how to reduce them to something else. You can figure out how to legally take back what is yours. Or you can choose Jesus' way. He's not telling you that you should delight in the fact that somebody is taking advantage of you. The principle that he's teaching is that everything that you have belongs to him anyway. If somebody wants to take your stuff, give it to them. Jesus wants us to know that God takes care of us. That your possessions, they don't, they don't own you. They don't define you. So don't let your anger over you losing them, even if it's unfairly, cause you to harm your witness in this world. So what do we do with all of this anger and shock? And indignation. How do we determine if if we should be outraged? If, If what we are outraged about aligns with what Jesus is outraged about. Trying to decipher when we should be outraged and what should we be outraged about looks like this. It's difficult, right? We don't know what it is that we should do in those moments. But Jesus in these verses makes it clear to us. Jesus is saying, I, I know that you have heard this about the world that you should retaliate and you should take them to court and you should sue them and you should do these things. But, but I say that you should choose love and sacrificial service and generosity. But if we're honest today, what we want to say is that, Jesus, I, I heard that you said that I should choose these things, love and service and generosity. But, but I tell you, Jesus, that I want to yell at that person that insulted my daughter. I want to put that person in their place that doesn't understand that I got this job because I deserve it, not because of the color of my skin. I want to take legal action against the person who profiled me. I want to shake all those people who call me Caleb every week. I want to go back to the career I had in science and stop dealing with the hurt that happens at church. The place where I would think I would be the most safe. Where people could come to be safe. But sometimes this place is the place of the deepest hurt and the deepest rejection. I remember being at a job and it being my second week there and I was going to be in a room much like this, filled with people of the church and filled with people of the community. And I was going to get introduced that week I was going to get to talk about and pray with them about how we were going to work in our communities and work in our country and work in our world. And they had planned a luncheon and, and, and a presentation and someone was going to get up and do something before I spoke and they were going to introduce me. It was done. They sat me in the front row. And the performer for the day walked through the front from the back in his confederate outfit. And he stood on the stage. And the performance for the day was the Civil War in seven songs. And I made it through the first six songs. And then he stood on the stage and he took his hat off and he put it over his heart. And he asked us all to stand up and we were going to sing Dixie together. And they did while I was standing there. And then when they were done, someone in the back cheered for an encore. You know what happened? They sung it again. Can you feel the anger? Can you feel the shock? Two weeks into the job. Two weeks into this place where I was supposed to be their family. and This is what my welcome is like. So what did I do? I walked to the front. I prayed. I talked about all the work that we could do in the community together. And I walked out of the room, went in my office, and I cried. No one on staff said anything to them. But five years later, we were doing great work in the community and they loved us and they cared about us. And so I want to tell you that every day in our lives, at times in our lives, we're going to bump into people we're going to bump into churches. We're going to bump into a moment that pushes us over the line, that pushes us so far past the fact or the why that Jesus has us in that moment that we can't even see why he had us there in the first place. You can't see it anymore. But Jesus gets us, right? He says, Otis, I know you could. I know you could have stood in that and that pulpit, and I know you could have let them have it. I, I know that you're entitled to do that. I know you feel like they deserve your hate and resistance and outrage. But choose this. Choose me. And when we do, in those moments, God provides deliverance for us. The sting is still there. The hurt is still there. But the burden is light. And isn't that what the gospel is about? I mean, I could live forever and the only way that I could experience complete salvation and fulfill God's plan and purpose for my life is to be willing to accept his help. Help when I'm angry. Help when I'm in shock. Help when I'm indignant. When people are hurting me. Those of us that follow Jesus, we all know what this is like. We all know how it feels to be so far down that line that we don't think anybody's coming and then Jesus shows up. And we never want to go back to not being able to walk with him again. And for those of you that are here that haven't given your life to Jesus, that aren't fully devoted to him yet, that's what we want for you. We don't want you to end up on the road to Jericho on the side of the road because the attack came. And you've been stripped of the things that you find value in and beaten beyond recognition and left on the road. What we want for you is a relationship with Jesus. So you're never on that road alone. That somebody's always coming for you. That we're always there for you. And we're not perfect. But we're maturing. We're growing in our walk. We're growing in our ways to do this. But what you need to hear today is that Jesus gets us. He understands. He gets you. He wants us to choose him. It's what we all want for you. It's what we need for each other.